0: We're building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. Just before we get into today's episode, we'd like to invite you to subscribe to our weekly devotional group. Just text the two words Promise Keepers" to 31996. Every week you'll receive a challenging devotional that will inspire you to put your faith into action in the real world. Again, text Promise Keepers to three one nine nine six. And now here's today's show.
1: So today we're going to talk with Rob Dreher, who's written, I think, one of the most important books of the last couple of years, "Live Not by Lies." It's about how did the Soviets uh, come into control Russia, and then the whole Eastern Bloc, and we see the parallels in America today that that communists were able to come into Russia and exploit people who had lost their identity and who were overcome with loneliness. And we see today the epidemic of the friendless American male and and growing loss of our identity, who we are as a people, who we are as a people of Jesus Christ. And we see the same festering pool getting ready um, to usher in a totalitarian government. Rob goes into deep detail on this. I think you'll find this conversation fascinating. Hey, Rod, uh, I just want to talk to you about this book you wrote, um, Live Not By Lies. It's, it's one of the most impactful books I've ever read. Absolutely the most impactful book I've read in the last couple of years, where you really do a deep dive into how did the Soviets come to taking, or I should say, how did the communists come to taking over Russia? And how did they hold power and hold sway over all of Eastern Europe? How are they able to get a Christian nation Just start turning in their neighbors, spying on them. This is one of the the most important interviews that I'm going to do on this podcast because what you have to say is so incredibly important and so incredibly applicable to the United States today. And if this doesn't strike terror in the hearts of people who are listening to this, but I also want to tell everybody that you actually have an awesome solution that you've done through all your research in the book as well. So, just just start us off from there. How did the russians end up being able to come in and take over uh, i mean this communist come over take over russia
2: well I, I guess i should probably start ken by saying that where this book came from i got the idea to write this book when i began hearing from people in this country immigrants to this country from communist countries who are saying the things they're seeing happen in america today remind them of what they left behind and I thought it was kind of alarmist at first, but the more I dug into what they were saying and started listening to them and, and investigating their claims, the more I came to see, holy cow, they're right. They've they've got this. And that took me back to, to researching how, as you say, communism came to a Christian nation like Russia. Uh, Hannah Arendt, who is one of the great political philosophers of the 20th century, uh, she was a German-Jewish refugee from Nazism. After the Second World War, she did uh, a big book called The Origins of Totalitarianism, in which she went back and looked at how the totalitarians came to power in Russia and in Germany. Even though Nazi totalitarianism and Soviet totalitarianism were two very different creatures, they were both totalitarian and they both had similar roots. She said that the most important factor in pre-totalitarian Russia was loneliness, mass loneliness, and mass alienation from the institutions of society. In, in Russia, you had uh, a fa- uh, vast or, or quick industrialization. So many uh, young people, young men especially, were taken out of their villages and brought into the cities to work in the factories. They were cut off from their churches. They were cut off from their families, and they were desperate for for a sense of meaning they were desperate for a sense of brotherhood of companionship and they were desperate for purpose the communists were able to speak to that and the communists also spoke to that because they would look at the the people would look at the church and the church was pretty corrupt back then russian orthodox church i am russian orthodox that's my form of christianity oh is that right yeah that's right and uh it was painful to me to read about how corrupt the church was back then but that's just history. We can't ignore that. And the regime, the government of Russia, the Tsarist government, was also corrupt and ineffective. Uh, this is something I had no idea about until I started doing this research. But in uh, for 30, 40 years, the Marxists had been trying to get a foothold in Russia in the 19th century, and nobody would listen to them. It was just students. And uh, the, but most people just said, yeah, 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 you're crazy. And they didn't, never got anywhere. Then there came a famine in 1891-92 that the government could not respond effectively to. And that really shook up a lot of ordinary middle-class Russians. They began to think, hey, you know, our government really doesn't know what it's doing. Maybe these Marxists are on to something. And the culture itself began, intellectual high culture began to collapse Believe it or not, Ken, Satanism became a thing. I had no idea about this. Really? Yeah, yeah. In early 20th century Russia, I don't think these were actual Satan worshipers, but a lot of the literary elite and the cultural elite started admiring Satan because they saw him as being very proud and individualistic and he could Mm -hmm. go his own way. And they saw him as being opposed to everything that they hated in Russia with the church and the czar. Uh, as an aside, as you and I are talking, just the other day, I saw that this Lil Nas X, this rapper, has just come out with a satanic Russia. video. I don't know if you've seen it, but I mean, it is wholly satanic. And, uh, and I, I had to just shake my head and thinking that this was the kind of thing, this transgression for transgression's sake, that was in Russia and be- just before the revolution. But mostly it was about mass alienation, and it was about a lack of trust. The, the Russian people had lost all trust in their institutions, church and government, but also uh, all the smaller institutions of society, the sort of things that keep you grounded. All of this is happening right now here in America. This was one of the most shocking things. I, I saw that uh, there was a Cigna, the health insurance giant. Cigna did a study that came out just before COVID hit last year, And they found that 69% of all Americans describe themselves as lonely. And the numbers are even higher among the younger generation, the most impressionable generation. And uh, they can't turn to or they don't want to turn to church. They don't want to turn to any other institution in society because they don't believe in them. And, uh, And so these guys, especially guys, but also women, but especially guys, they're sitting there not knowing what to do with their lives. They're drugging themselves with porn and with video games and sometimes with pot just to try to to stave off the sense of meaninglessness. I guarantee you what's going to happen if we don't watch out is some charismatic tyrant is going to come in here and tell these young people, we have what you need. We can help you find solidarity. We can help you find meaning and purpose. Just come follow me. That's what Hitler did. That's what Lenin did. That's what Stalin did too, wasn't it? Yeah, well, Stalin really? succeeded. Yeah, he succeeded Lenin, but he he uh, he made it even more powerful by instituting the secret police at a, in an extraordinary way, carrying out mass murders. So, uh, by the time Stalin took over, there was no such thing as dissent. You couldn't possibly dissent from it. And that, you know, one thing too that I've I really shook me up in doing this research about the Soviets. The Soviets divided good and evil people uh, between good and evil and divided it between classes. Like uh, there's a, I quote this in the book, there was a a communique that went out from this man named Martin Latsis. He was the head of the secret police in Ukraine right after the revolution. And uh, Lenin had told them all to go institute what he called the red terror. That is to go massacre people or imprison people to let them know that we are the boss and things are not going to change. Latsis told us people don't go and looking for who actually did things wrong or opposed the Soviet regime that's not how to do this rather go find out who belongs to which social class if they belong to the kulaks which was the rich farmers then they're the enemy of the state if they're intellectuals are the enemy of the state and so on then you you kill them or you send them to prison that is extraordinary to me because that's exactly what our social justice warriors are doing today. They're not dividing people in terms of class, but they're doing it in terms of race, uh, sexual orientation, and gender identity, and of course, politics. They don't really want to know if you are actually guilty of anything. All they want to know is what is your race? What is your gender? And so on. Uh, it's all the same thing, though. It's uh, I, I saw the other day Ibram Kendi, the big... Um, the guru of anti-racism, so-called anti-racism. He was giving a talk at a church in Manhattan, a liberal Protestant church. He was asked about Christianity. I don't think he himself considers himself a Christian anymore. But he said there are two kinds of Christianity. There's revolutionary Christianity, which sees sin as something outside of the individual. It's built in the structures of society. Revolutionary Christianity wants to liberate uh, humankind from these evil structures. And then you have what he called savior Christianity, which says that human beings are sinful and that they, they want it wants to liberate people from their sin. Mm. That well, that sounds like normal Christianity to me, but Ibram Kendi said that kind of Christianity breeds bigotry and we're here to fight for revolutionary Christianity. It, it can't be any clearer than that, Ken, that what we're mm. dealing with here is something deeply anti-Christian that is taking over parasitically the structures and the language and the parachurch groups of christianity
1: rod i mean i've talked to young christians who have proudly talked about marching and blm things last year um they've talked about antifa and and they equate this with christianity and it's been shocking to me that's the first time i've ever heard anybody put it in a way that i get where they're coming from because i'm like how in the world can you be someone who says i follow christ and support Antifa? And now I finally get it based on what you just said.
2: Sure. Uh, Rene Girard was one of the great intellectuals of the 20th century and a Christian, died a few years ago. He said around the year 2000 that he could see what was coming, this idea of making uh, victims sacred. He said this is a form of antichrist because he said when antichrist comes, he won't be openly opposed to Christ. He's going to deceive people by being more Christian than Christ. So when you have, said Gerard, these social justice, war we now call them social justice warriors, but when they talk about how they're going to perfect Christianity by, by caring even more about the victims than the church does, that is a signal that we're dealing with a, a demonic deception. And I think that's exactly what's going on here because I think you and I would agree that all Christians should be against racism and against racial injustice. But the way this is being used by activists is, I I think, really deceptive. I read a, a, there's a new book coming out in a few days by uh, Vadi Bokum. Is that how you say his name? Do you know this? Yeah, I
1: love Vadi. He's a good dude.
2: Yeah, it's a great book called Fault Lines. And it's Vadi's take on critical uh, race theory and the way it's tearing up the church. I tell everybody, get this book, Fault Lines by Vadi Bokum. It is powerful. It is based... Deeply in the Bible, and he he takes no prisoners. He just lays it all out there about this deception that has overcome the church now and is threatening to tear us apart. Well, have you ever met him, Vadi? I've not.
1: No, he's he's <laughs> built like an NFL linebacker. He's an expert in jujitsu, and he runs a, a, a seminary in Africa. So he's right. not somebody you want to argue with,
2: <laughs> right? But I was so glad this finally came out because I I found myself trying to talk to fellow Christians about this Christians who are really concerned and rightly concerned with racial injustice. But mm-hmm. I want to tell them, you know, look what you're having to accept here by uh, by wanting to do the right thing and stand up for racial justice. We're getting ourselves into uh, into a trap with these social justice folks. But I mean, Christians should be for social justice, but social justice from a biblical perspective is not the same thing as it is from a secular perspective. But this is all part of this great deception that has come upon us, not just upon the church, but on American society now. And I think that we are very much in a pre-totalitarian era again. I dedicated my book, Live Not By Lies, to this Catholic priest from Croatia. His name is Father Tomislav Kolakovic. In 1943, Father Kolakovic was doing work against the Nazis in his home city he got a tip that the Gestapo was coming after him. So he slipped out of the country overnight, went to Slovakia, a nearby country where his mother had come from, and he began teaching at a Catholic university there. He told his students when he got there, he said, the good news is the Germans are going to lose this war. The bad news is that when it's over with, the Soviets are going to be ruling this country. And the first thing they're going to do is come after the church. We have to get ready. So what he did... He had well, that much cool, insight. ...was bring students wow. together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had this insight, Ken, because he had studied the Soviet Union uh, when he was in seminary because he wanted to be a, a missionary and he needed to know how the communists thought. And uh, so uh, what he did was organize students in prayer groups. He would bring small groups together for prayer, but not just prayer. They also came together to talk about what was going on in their country and uh, how they, as Christians, needed to prepare themselves and their neighbors for the persecution that was coming. In two years, these little Kolokovich prayer groups had spread all across the country. Any town of any size had one. Now, the Catholic bishops of his country said to him, Father, you've got to stop this. You're scaring people. You're being alarmist. It will never happen here. But he knew better than that. Sure enough, when the Iron Curtain fell, Kolakovich was kicked out, the first thing the communists did was come after the churches and the priests, and they, they imprisoned them, thinking that this was how they were going to crush the church. But because Father Kolakovich had prepared the laity and also some priests who were willing to go at this with open eyes, he had prepared them, there was an underground church to continue the life of the church and in ministry, in ministry and evangelism despite the persecution. Thank God for that man, Father Kolokovic. So I dedicated my book to him, even though I'm not a Catholic, because I really do believe that we are in a Kolokovic moment in this country. And all Christians, evangelical, uh, mainline Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, all of us have got to wake up and start putting these groups together and forming these networks while we still have the freedom to do so.
1: Yeah, Rod, when I was reading the book, I actually thought you were Catholic because... You speak so highly of what the Catholics did. And, you know, one of the things that's killing the church today is comfort creates tribalism. And we have so much tribalism, you know, some of the hate mail I get from people, and I get a lot of it, is around every time I say anything nice about Catholics, I'm like, what is wrong with people? And so we know from your book, all the research you did, and I want to let people know you were in Hungary, you were in Romania, you were talking to massive amounts of people, you've done your research. We know the Catholic Church was extremely influential,
2: the Catholic Church and the Baptists, at the fall of the Iron Curtain. Yeah, you know, one of the things I learned from talking to these dissidents, because I went over there, as you said, to the former Eastern European countries that were under communism and to Russia, to talk to Christians who lived through hard totalitarianism And to ask them, how can we prepare ourselves now for whatever is coming our way? I think it's a softer version, but it's still going to be totalitarianism. One of the key things I learned was that in prison, these denominational distinctives melted away. It's not that people quit being Catholic or Protestant or or whatever, but it's that they recognized that they weren't in prison because they were Protestant. They weren't in prison because they were Catholic or Orthodox they were in prison because they were followers of our lord jesus christ and they were able to draw together to pray for each other to study scripture together because a lot of them they couldn't have bibles so those who had memorized scripture were able to recite it for them all to talk about and uh, they realized that this was an ecumenism of prison Uh, similarly uh, one of the best stories in this book and i think one that's probably really applicable to promise keepers comes from this man Jan Simulczyk. Uh, Jan Simulczyk is a historian of the underground church in Slovakia. He took me, when I was there in his city, Bratislava, he took me to this ordinary house, in suburban Bratislava. The family led us in. He had arranged for us to come in. This house in the last 10 years of communism had been uh, lived in by a Catholic priest who was disguised as a worker. He was a secret priest. In the basement of that house there was a secret printing room actually it was not even in the basement you had to go down into the basement he took me there you moved aside a secret door we climbed down into a tunnel the tunnel took us under the wall the basement wall into a secret room that had been carved out and inside this room was an offset printer where the underground catholic church printed gospels prayer books and things to catechize Uh, the young people, for 10 years. Secretly, they did this. The government, if they had found out about it, they all would have gone to prison. They were able to do this because some evangelical brothers and sisters in Christ in the Netherlands had smuggled that printer into Slovakia uh, in pieces. And then they sent in a second team to reassemble it for the Catholics in this little room, this hidden room, so the Catholics could serve their people. I mean, talk about brotherhood. But uh, Jan Simulczyk took me down into this room to show it to me, and I I just couldn't get over it. Uh, It was very cramped, and there was a man who had done all the work there for 10 years because they had to be very careful about who knew about this room. Jan told me that he used to come to that house as a college student in the 80s, and he he was part of the underground church and part of a cell of young men, all college students, who uh, all they were told was go to this house on the X day each week, and you'll be there to bind uh, uh, things that had been printed, Samizdat, they call it, these things that have been illegally printed for distribution. They did not know, Jan and his buddies, that it was actually being made in the hidden basement of that house until after communism fell. Jan told me that coming there to that house to do that work week in and week out, they were terrified, he and his buddies, because they knew that if any of them had been caught, they would have been sent to prison. But they came because they loved the Lord first and foremost, and they came because they loved each other. And he told me that the small groups, the small groups of men were what saved him in the sense that he said, it gave us courage. It gave me courage. We learned courage from each other because we were really risking our freedom and even our lives every week to serve God and to serve the church by by doing this. He said, uh, over the years of doing this, we grew in love for each other and love for our Lord and in courage and virtue such that when the underground church in the year 1988 put out a call for all Christians to descend upon the the city square in Bratislava for the first demonstration in that country since the Soviet invasion of 1968, Jan was with them. He and all of his buddies, they went down there. 10,000 Christians descended on the square one night with candles to pray and sing hymns to pray for peace. The government didn't know what was happening. You can go on YouTube and see what happened. They sent in water cannons to disperse the people. That was the first sign of rebellion that kicked off the Velvet Revolution that a year later overturned communism. But that that uh, candle demonstration, as they call it, it started in small groups in places like, like the, the 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 house where the hidden priest was making dot So I
1: want to sum up so far where we're at. Basically, people saw their country, their freedom, everything snatched away because they were lonely. They lost their national identity and they were being divided by groups. So they were guilty simply by belonging to a certain
2: group. That sounds right. an awful lot like America today. And let me tell you this. This happened to them because they didn't pay attention to what the elites were talking about. Mm. Uh, the a lot of uh, communism was something that started only among the intellectuals at first, and a lot of ordinary people thought, "Ah, oh, this is just the intellectuals. You know, they'll never amount to anything." Then one day they woke up, and these crazy theories were ruling their society. Well, think about where we are in, in America today. 15, 20 years ago, the only people talking about transgenderism were like on the English faculty at some small liberal arts college. Now it's the law of the land in some places. And if the Equality Act passes, we're going to see persecution of Christian businesses and Christian institutions over this same thing. It happened so quickly because so many of us weren't paying attention or so many of us in the church thought that, oh, if we just elect the right people to office or get the right judges on the bench, things will take care of themselves. Here we are, we've lost the culture. And this is this is part of the fight that, that we have. And the reason I tell people this, Ken, is I do want to alarm them. I want to alarm them in a positive sense, not in the sense of go hide under your bed and hope it all goes away. It's not gonna all go away. I want to alarm people and make them think that or make them realize that what's happening now is not normal. This has happened a version of this has happened a century ago and we in the church need to get ready right now to fight back and if this stuff if God is, for whatever reason allowing this stuff to rule our society for any number of years then we have to be prepared to resist it and to be resilient in our faith and not let it crush us.
0: Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. And now, back to today's show.
2: Promise Keepers is back, and we're relaunching the stadium events that brought millions of men to Christ. Join us this July at AT AT&T Stadium in Dallas, Texas, for a men's conference like no other. Strengthen your soul with unforgettable worship led by top Christian artists. Form friendships with brothers in Christ that last a lifetime, and discover new tools and strategies that will empower you to follow Jesus more faithfully. Be sure to get your tickets before they sell out or find a simulcast location near you. Visit www.promisekeepersevent.com for the latest information. We'll see you this summer.
1: And Rod, you make the point in the book that for a lot of us, I mean, I, I graduated college in 1989. And I, you know, I used to, you did too. Yeah. Um i bet you went to a better college than I did. <laughs> I went to LSU. Where would you go? I went to Oregon State. I guess they're about the same. About the I tell same, people, yeah. I went to the Harvard of the West Coast. I have a Beaver Believer. <laughs> to the Harvard on the Bayou. <laughs> go Tigers. Um, although I'm an Oregon Duck fan, so go figure. Um, thanks for what you guys did to us in football 10 years ago, by the yeah. way. I was at that Pleasure. game. Bless your hearts.
2: Um, But yeah, you and I grew up, though, at the end of the Cold War under Reagan, and Mm -hmm. we thought all this stuff was over, right? And I I can remember this is one of the the most difficult things for people our generation and older to understand about where we are. We thought that big business was at least neutral. If they weren't the good guys, they were at least neutral in these fights. Now, big business has gone totally woke. Uh, This... We, we were trained in our generation to look at big government as the as the enemy or as at least the problem. Now it's also big business. It's Amazon, it's Google, it's Facebook. Uh, I remember back 2015 uh, when the state of Indiana tried to pass and did pass a, a state version of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, Apple, computers, Salesforce, all these big corporations came down like a ton of bricks on the state and said, this is bigoted, and if you don't repeal this law, there will be serious economic consequences, and the state repealed the law. The key thing about that, Ken, is that this was the first time that big business had gotten involved in the culture war in that way, and man, did they come down hard. And uh, that was like a week later. Uh, the State of Arkansas was going to pass a similar law. Walmart cleared its throat, and that law was gone. Uh, in our country and in our society, when you have business on the other side, you're done. <laughs> and this is the sort of thing that that Christians, faithful traditional Christians, are up against. It's not just the government; it's uh, it's big business. And what I talk about in the book is surveillance capitalism about Amazon and Google and others tracking us, what we do, what we buy, what we say, and it will ultimately be used against us. That was something that, uh, in the book, I talk about this woman, Camilla Bendova, she and her late husband, Václav, were leaders in the underground in Czechoslovakia, and the only Christians at that high level. And uh, she said to me that, she goes, it's so bizarre to me to see how you Americans, and even how young people in her own country, are so free with your information. She said, if you've lived through what we live through, you know that there's no such thing as innocently gathering information, that they will one day use it against you. And uh, she will not have a smartphone. She and her adult children have dumb phones. And they. she said, we don't use the internet. Now, that's extreme. I couldn't go that far. I couldn't do my work that way. But I appreciate what she's telling me because she showed me, She, as we were sitting there talking, she pointed to her, the walls of her apartment where there were scars going up through the paint where she and her late husband had pulled out the wires that the secret police had put in their apartment to surveil her and her family. So we can't afford to dismiss people like that because they've lived through it and they know how this works. I mean, Rod,
1: guys like you and I are raising our hands now and saying, pick me, right? Because if things continue to go down the road that you're talking about, we are guys that are volunteering to be in the front. And you know what makes us stand out is the fact that other people aren't joining us. I'm thinking about Louisiana's law. Well, if if the other 30 conservative states had stood with Louisiana, the corporations would have fallen like, like nothing. If we had the tens of millions of Christian uh, evangelicals, fundamentalists, conservative Catholics standing with us, nobody could do anything. Right. It's as long as people stand back and say, well, Rod, you go ahead and and you take the forefront, and can you go ahead and run Promise Keepers, and when they come to get you, it's going to suck to be you. Yeah,
2: That's what leaves us so weak. It does. You know, I, I talked a few years ago to an evangelical friend who is in administration at a Christian college in California, and we were talking about the fight back then to protect Cal grants. Now, in the state of California, the state gives grants to students who are needy and allows them to use it to go to any accredited college in the state, including private colleges. Well, a few years ago, there was a move by the head of the LGBT caucus in the state legislature to restrict Cal Cal grants and make them where they can't be used at these so-called bigot colleges, Christian colleges. So there was a fight to protect these colleges. This would have forced all Christian colleges in the state to either uh, abdicate their conscience or close. And uh, the, this guy I was talking to, my friend, said, we went down, he and a team went down to the wealthy churches of Orange County, wealthy evangelical mega churches, and said, we need you on our side here to protect colleges. None of them would get on board. Why really? not? Yeah, because they were terrified of being called bigots. They Middle class respectability and comfort mattered more to them than religious freedom. The man said the only way that we were able to save the colleges – is black Pentecostal pastors from Los Angeles got involved and the Hispanic mm. Catholic Archbishop of LA got involved. But if it had been up to middle-class white people, it wouldn't have happened. And I, I see that, and this happened a few years ago, but I see that same sort of thing happening now across our society. So many Christians are so afraid to lose comfort and status. Mm. and This is going to destroy us. One of the things I learned from the talking to the Christians who went through hard totalitarianism, they said, you, you shouldn't think that most Christians were willing to stand up. Most Christians wanted to keep their head down and avoid trouble. Only the ones who, who were willing to suffer for their faith, to suffer for Christ, stood up. And th- this is something that we have got to cultivate among ourselves, among Christians today, especially among men. I remember standing on a street corner in Moscow two years ago talking to this elderly man named Yuri Sipko. He is a Baptist, a Russian Baptist, was raised in a village under Stalinism where all the men in the village, all the Baptist men have been taken and put in the gulag. The women had to raise the children. Yuri went on to become, as an adult, the head of the Russian Baptist and now he's retired. But he looked at me in the eye and said, you've got to go back home to America and tell the church that if you're not prepared to suffer for your faith, then your faith is nothing but hypocrisy. And when you're told that by a man who's lived the kind of life he has, I felt I had a charge on me. And it really is true. Suffering, Ken, is the key here. We don't like to talk about that in church. We don't like to talk about the fact that ours is a church of martyrs going all the way back to the early church. And in every generation in the church, somewhere in the world, there have been Christians who have had to be confessors, in other words, to suffer for their faith, or even be willing to be martyred for their faith. Right now in the world, in China, in Africa, there are martyrs. God may be calling us to that too. It, you don't you don't win a lot of people and sell a lot of books telling people, prepare <laughs> yourself for martyrdom, but it's true. And if the church is going to survive, we have to do that and we men are the ones who are going to have to take on this burden especially
1: well you sold a hundred thousand books of a book that you know i would not have thought was going to be a bestseller it is phenomenal um as we sort of get towards wrapping this up um i wanted you to really put this into a frame that people will really understand what you're talking about because you talk about some suffering in your book that people went through you know the bible jesus tells us we but we're going to suffer we're told in hebrews that jesus learned obedience to his father through suffering so we know that god perfects obedience in pain perfects character in pain but you tell a couple stories and one in particular about 38 priests who were told to recant take that take that story from there
2: and that that is one of the stories that i'll carry with me the rest of my life i was in russia interviewing this man named alexander ogorodnikov he's 70 years old now He was one of the later dissidents in the Soviet Union. He came from a prominent communist family. He found Christ when he was in his early 20s and uh, started a prayer group there in Moscow. And uh, of course, the KGB came down very hard on him because they wanted to make an example of him since he came from a communist family. Eventually, they put him in prison and they gave him, even though he didn't have a death sentence, they put him on death row with the hardest uh, men in Russia. Well, he began to evangelize them and he began converting them and leading them to christ so eventually they put him in a private cell you know solitary confinement he was tortured i mean he still to this day is paralyzed on one side of his face from the beatings he took anyway he told me that when he was sitting there in that in solitary confinement he was beginning to lose his faith beginning to doubt god's providence the lord sent him one night an angel that gave him a vision an actual vision he told me that in this vision, he saw a man, a prisoner being escorted by two guards. He had his hands tied behind his back to his execution. He couldn't see the faces or uh, the face of the prisoner. This kept happening night after night with a different prisoner. And Ogorodnikov later came to understand that the Lord was showing him that these were men he had witnessed to. And of course, they were going to be executed because he had a death sentence, but they were going to be with the Lord in paradise forever because he, Ogorodnikov, had been there to witness to them. And Ogorodnikov regained his faith then and realized the Lord had me here for a reason. Well, later, they, the Soviets moved him to a little country jail where he was the only prisoner. And he was given a guard, an elderly man who was a pensioner, who was given a guard to look over him and watch over him at night. The guard came to Ogorodnikov's cell and started banging on the bars and said, I need you to hear my confession. I need you to hear my confession. Ogorodnikov said, well, I'm not a priest, but what do you have to say to me? The old man said, they come at night. They come at night. Well, who comes at night? The old man told a story about when he was younger, he had been brought out as a guard to guard these 38 priests, Orthodox priests, whom the KGB had arrested. KGB lined them up one after the other, uh, one behind the other. Went up to the first one, put a pistol to his head and said, do you believe in God? Priest said, yes. They blew his brains out, brains splattered on the face of the priest behind him. Went to the priest behind him, do you believe in God? Each one of those, they went down the line, not one of those priests denied God. They all died as martyrs that night. And this old man, the memory of that haunted him. The faces of these brave Christian priests as they were facing death, was what haunted this old man in his old age. Ogorodnikov was crying when he told me this story. He said, and that was when I knew why the Lord had not let me see the faces of those men in my vision, because I wouldn't have been able to take it. It would have driven me crazy, like it has driven this, old, this guard crazy. I tell that story because it really did happen, but also to let people know, let my readers know, that this could be the kind of heroism and sanctity that we're all called to and if we're not preparing ourselves for it right now we are going to fall when the time of testing comes i was talking to a young man just this weekend a college student a christian college student who was telling me how ashamed he is of himself he heard himself in class this past semester saying things that he didn't believe were true because to object to the the wokeness the progressivism in class would be to call down the mob on him And uh, he couldn't be silent because he said, you have to get in order to get a good grade, you have to participate. So he lied and he now knows he's read my book. He said, I'm not gonna do that again. He knows that to be a follower of Jesus and to be just a man, he's got to live by the truth.
1: How do we prepare ourselves? How do we get to a point where we know that when someone sticks a gun to our head and says, do you believe in God? they're going to pull the trigger we'll say yeah how do we get to a point of having confidence that we have that kind of faith rod yeah
2: i don't know that any of us will know for sure until it happens to us ken to be honest but there are things that we can and we must do prepare ourselves for that for one we have to root ourselves even more deeply in scripture and we have to relate what we know from the bible uh to what's going on in the world around us we can't just be an abstract, abstract thing We have to do like what Father Kolakovich and his groups did, which is come together in small groups, not only to pray, but to study what's happening around us in light of scripture, and then decide what exactly are we going to do? Secondly, I strongly believe we need to read the stories of the suffering church, not only the suffering church today, but the suffering church of history, of the martyrs, and ask ourselves, what was it about the way they lived as followers of Jesus that allowed them to accept martyrdom. Just a few years ago, you might remember this, there were these, I think, 21 Coptic Christian martyrs who were mm. executed by ISIS on the beach in Libya. Every one of those men, they could have apostatized and said, oh no, I accept, uh, Muhammad, I accept Allah, Muhammad is his prophet. They didn't do it. They bravely went to their deaths as Christians. And they did it because they had lived in such a way in their life, their everyday life, to prepare them for that moment. You know, there's this movie I I reference in Live Not By Lives, this movie called A Hidden Life, came out a couple of years ago. It's the true story of Franz Jägerstater, who was an Austrian Catholic farmer. He lived in a little town in the Alps during the Nazi years. When Nazism came to his village, um, he was the only one, him and his wife, who didn't become a Nazi. These were all church-going people, but all of them just conformed and went along with the Nazis and pressured him to do it. He didn't do it. And he eventually was put in prison and executed by the Nazis because he refused to swear an oath of allegiance to Hitler. And he's now being considered for sainthood by the Catholic Church. What we have to ask ourselves is, what was it about Franz Jägerstater that allowed him, even though he was an ordinary man, like all the other uh, men and women of the village, that allowed him and his wife to recognize the evil, the radical evil, when it showed up in town and to resist it even unto death? I think it's the way they lived as Christians before Nazism even existed. They lived such lives of radical discipleship that when the time came, they saw what they had to do and they did it. Radical discipleship is the only thing that is going to save us uh, and uh, also the willingness to accept suffering and not to be afraid of suffering. This is how the soft totalitarianism is going to work. It's working on our fear of comfort and loss of comfort and loss of status. I was talking, Ken, to a woman who was my translator in Hungary, 29 years old, Christian, uh, married five years, had a little child. She said, I just don't understand it when I'm even when I talk to my Christian friends here about the things I struggle with in my marriage or being a mom. The first thing they say, they cut me off and say, well, leave your husband, put your son in daycare, just go get a job. You be you. You live your own truth. She said, I want to tell them, wait, I love my husband. I love being a mom, but it's hard sometimes. I'd like to be able to talk about what it means to, you know, to struggle together. But nobody of her generation, she said, understands struggle. We have got to reintroduce ourselves and our children, Ken, to the importance of struggle. Struggle is not a bad thing. You know, we have to, to die to yourself so that we can live in Christ is a good thing. And it's something we have to learn. If you're not part of a church now... That that, uh, that that doesn't, if you're part of a church that doesn't value struggle, that talks about comfort and good feeling and warmth, ain't going to make it, brother. You Amen. are not going to make it Amen. through persecution. Find yourself a church that will root you deeply in scripture, build strong small group fellowship, and will talk about suffering, what it's worth to suffer for the sake of Christ you are like a
1: voice crying in the wilderness and i i love it man i mean what you're saying is so important so loneliness ushered in a lack of freedom and we know that small groups discipleship will preserve freedom right i mean um christ has called us to suffer everything you've said you've been quoting scripture without even quoting scripture you've been just (laughs) going right along these people who suffered um the messages they gave you are straight from the bible
2: yeah, and you know, Camilla, the the old lady I was telling you about, she, I asked her how she raised, she and her late husband raised faithful Christian children in the middle of communist persecution. And uh, well, her husband, one of the things he did was he would sit down with the kids and help them understand in a deep way what was happening in the world around them insofar as they could as kids. But Camilla said, I read to my kids for two hours every day. I said, that's interesting. What would you read to them? She said i read them the classics things that they weren't getting in school because they were politically incorrect and i read to them a lot of tolkien i said tolkien why tolkien she looked at me in the eye and said because we knew that mordor was real Mm -hmm. and she she explained went on to explain that you know these kids these little kids couldn't understand the complexity of what is communism what, what what is our resistance to communism about but they could understand the fellowship of the ring And they were able to understand what their mom and their dad and their mom and dad's friends were doing was like what Frodo and Gandalf and the others were doing. They were in a a quest together, a pilgrimage to fight evil. And uh, this, the lesson she was trying to tell me was prepare your kids that way, prepare their moral imagination. It's not enough to tell them, don't do this thing. You also have to give them a deep sense of what the good, the true and the beautiful are. And that will feed their moral imagination and give them the strength, the internal strength to stand up when the time comes. And all these kids were part of the resistance, too. Sometimes they would slip out secret messages in the pockets of these children. The secret police weren't looking for them. And the kids would run across town and give the message to be sent to the Voice of America to tell the world about new persecutions. So uh, it, it, look, it's an adventure, but it's it's not a, it's not a game. But this is something that we can start and we have to start doing right now while we have the freedom to do this. I believe, and I talk about this in the book, that eventually we're going to have uh, something like China's social credit system here in America, where people will not be able to buy or sell if they, are not, if they have a low social credit score. The Chinese have shown, are showing how to do this now. We have the technology here in America. It's just we don't have the political will to, to uh, institute it yet. That day could be coming. We cannot, as believers, be caught off guard. And what you're saying is,
1: to put a ribbon on that, if you're considered to go to a church that is bigoted, that doesn't believe that men who put on dresses are women and crazy stuff like that, then your social credit score could come down. And you therefore, maybe it starts off, you can't get into the NFL football game because the NFL says, well, we don't like bigots like you. And eventually it gets to the point where if you follow Christ, they'll make it impossible for you to buy basic goods and all that stuff. You're saying if we don't start finding our spines and doing something, this is coming to a theater near us.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I finally am able to understand what the Bible means when it says that in the last days, people will not be able to buy or sell unless they get the mark of the beast. I remember reading that when I was younger thinking, how would they pull that off? Well, China can do it now. Uh, It doesn't require a mark in the forehead or on the hand. But if you're not part of the system, you know, they they rate every single Chinese person on the basis of uh, what you do online, the people you hang out with, because the system tracks your GPS on your phone. And uh, the more you do socially positive things, as far as the communist government is concerned, the higher your social credit score, the more privileges you have. You can go to the best restaurants, your kids can go to the best colleges and so forth. But if you start hanging out with disreputable people like Christians or if they see on your GPS that you've been to church, you'll have a lower score. If your score gets so low, uh, it gets to a point where you will not be able to buy or sell. That could come here. And uh, I'm afraid that unless we wake up now, it will come here and we need to not only fight it, fight against it but we also need to be prepared to help each other survive if it does come in, if we lose that fight. Uh, and this is where Father Kolakovich's network comes in. We have got to start doing practical things like uh, figuring out ways that we can help each other when uh, people we know, men and women we know lose their jobs because they will not say that a man is a woman just, and a woman is a man. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. This, this, These are practical things that we can do to make it easier for our fellow believers to stand up for Christ.
1: Rod, is there a um, audio version of your book for guys there who is. don't really read much?
2: Yeah, yeah, what, it's an audio book. And, Try um, to buy it on Amazon if you can help it, but you might have to.
1: <laughs> so let me just wrap this up about, if I can. Guys, get this book if you can. It's called Live Not By Lies. You could see the name up above uh, Rod's shoulder. It is, a, it is an incredibly important book. If you're not a reader, um and you want to get the audio version i strongly encourage you to do that and what rod was talking about too many men today are not going to church they don't have friends i hear all the time well i don't go to church i don't get anything out of it or i don't go to a church it's not for me well, who said you were supposed to get something out of it as men we need to stand up with courage and we need to go thinking who can i serve not what can i get get into small groups seek out people to disciple you and people you can disciple because This is not some little game we're playing anymore. If you you start to pay attention, these walls are starting to close down, and we're looking for men of God of courage who will stand up and lead their families, teach their kids, and get involved in what they can give, not what they can get. So get the book, Live Not By Lies. Thanks for listening to On The Edge Podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of promise keepers promise keepers is an organization founded by coach bill mccartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with jesus christ promise keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership to learn more and get involved in the mission of promise keepers visit promisekeepers.org follow on social media or download the promise keepers app on apple store or google play by searching promise keepers through the promise keepers app You'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network.